There's a new vocabulary that has uh, been developing over the last few years. I've been observing it. We don't speak so much about prejudice, racism these days, bigotry. Those are sort of the words that I learned uh, you know, at, a, at, a, at a former time when I was younger. But these days, especially the last few years, the, the word that we talk about in our public discourse is hatred, hate. I was uh, a little bit surprised and a little bit uh, not surprised to find that at the high school, they have a sort of a sensitivity training, a, a diversity training that all the students need to go through. And it's called No Place for Hate. And the administration, the parents and teachers have concluded that every high school student needs to be involved in this program. They need to take some of their time from English class and uh, spend some time in some workshops and seminars and learn about appreciating people who are different and being sensitive and listening and not lumping people into a group and making bad conclusions about them and not mistreating people. We have an opinion that hate is a big problem, that it's a problem that everyone needs to deal with, that people won't volunteer to deal with it. They need to be required to deal with it. And so we're dealing with hate as a society. And uh, we come up with characteristic uh, approaches uh, because of the nature of our whole society. We tend to be negative and we tend to be minimalist. We're negative in that we try to do away with the thing that shouldn't be there. Our main emphasis is not to put in what ought to be there in people's hearts, but to try to get out of their lives and out of their behavior the things that ought not to be there. And that's, uh, that's probably good because we shouldn't, uh, as, a, as a society like ours, get so involved in making people be what they ought to be. We don't want the government to do that job. But we just have a hope that people will be what they ought to be. So we, we, we have this move to develop legislation against hate crimes and to develop rules against hate speech. And uh, we're trying to remove the negative things. So it's a negative approach to get rid of the bad things, but not a positive approach of putting in the things that ought to be there. And it's also a, a minimalist approach. We try to do the least amount. We try to identify the things that really have to be done in order to make a livable society. So, okay, we know you're going to hate, but look, at least if you hate, don't carry out hate crimes. At least if you hate, uh, you know, so we identify the, the few things that really must take place. At least if you hate, uh, don't just lump people together as a race or a group. Try to understand a little bit more deeply and to appreciate people as individuals. And uh, I think all of that is good as far as it goes. The Bible has a unique approach to the problem of hate. And it's a positive approach not just trying to take out what shouldn't be there, but putting in what should. And uh, it's a maximalist approach, not just trying to achieve the smallest amount that's needed, but achieving all that God wants us to be and all that God wants us to do and accomplishing a, a complete and total renovation in our hearts. So we're in a place in the book of Ephesians where Paul 
is exhorting people and urging them to love the way that, uh, that, that they ought to in Jesus Christ. If you could turn with me to the book of Ephesians and uh, the end of chapter 4. And it's page 1159 if you're using one of those pew Bibles. I understand that now the, the pew Bibles just open automatically to that, to that page. <laughs> We've been in a, a sermon series. This is now our 10th month in the book of Ephesians. And we're just, just going to enter chapter 5 this morning. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 through 5, verse 2. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so what we find is um, Paul is giving people, an, an urge, he's urging them how to live together and to be kind to each other and you know, do away with hate, and he's trying to get people to love each other. But he does take a unique approach. And what I want us to think about as we look at Paul's appeal this morning is that the family trait of Christian love arises from an experience of Christ's love. That the common practice that exists among Christians and ought to exist among Christians of being kind and compassionate, of being gracious, of being loving toward one another. And the way that Christians are expected to love each other, that where that comes from is it arises from an experience of Christ's love. The practice of Christian love arises from the experience of Christ's love. It's when we get to know Christ, when we meet him, and we find his love through his word, through his spirit, through his people. And we meet him, and we find that he's loved us. We receive his love. We experience his love. Then the change in our behavior comes about, and we become loving people. That's how we learn to become loving people. The family trait of Christian love arises from an experience of Christ's love. So as we're going to look at a, an exhortation this morning, I keep wiping my hands, you know, I, I should have dusted off the pulpit before I, I came, and uh, I, I keep getting all this dust on me. We had, I have to apologize for our appearance this morning. We're, we're having the sanctuary recarpeted, and so things are a little bit in disarray, and next Sunday you'll come and we'll have fresh carpet. You know, with the, the carpets we had had been stretched, you know, take the, the wrinkles out that trip people. They had been stretched over the years a number of times to make them tight, and the carpet guys just said, uh, can't do it anymore, got to replace the carpet. So, so here we are. So as we, as we look at... An exhortation to love. You know, how do you, how do you get people to love? As we look at this exhortation to love, I want to open in prayer with Paul's prayer that you'll find right over on the opposite page in chapter 3, starting with verse 14. 
And uh, I love this prayer that Paul prays because it focuses on the fact that love comes from God. Love comes from heaven, that it's a gift from God. So I'm just going to pray for us this morning using, using these words, adapting these words of Paul. Let's pray. It says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Hatred is the trait of our old family. As we're born in Adam, as we're children of our first parents, we're like the first child that they had who was a murderer and who hated his brother and was jealous of him. Hatred is a common experience that everyone has. And uh, so at the high school, they don't look for volunteers for uh, diversity and tolerance training, but it's required of everyone. And uh, people tend to think that hatred is someone else's problem and not their own. But Paul uh, confronts us that this is our problem. It's not just a general problem that mankind has. You know, that's what we, we tend to talk about. You know, what, what do you think is the basic problem of man? It's, it's kind of easy to talk about that. Well, you know, one of the big problems of mankind is, is that they're, they're so selfish and so self-centered and so unkind to one another and people ought to be more gracious. And uh, it, th that kind of idea sort of rolls off our tongues so easily, but it's very hard for it to come back home. You know, wh when it comes a little closer, we start to say, well, you know, the problem is all those nasty people out there, if they would just get their act together and straighten themselves out, or at least get out of the way, then things would be a lot better. And so here we are spewing the hatred, and we're saying that the problem is in those other people. Somehow there's this bubble of innocence that surrounds me. And uh, the problem is in everybody else, but not in me. And uh, Paul just goes and pops the bubble right away. Uh, he says, you've got to put off your hatred. Um, he just says, hatred is our problem. It's a universal problem. Paul assumes it. Jesus assumes it. He says, what, what you need to do is you need to learn to to do unto others as you would have them do to you. Your problem is that you, you tend to do what you don't want done to you. You tend to be too full of hatred. The whole Old Testament law is summed up in love. God comes down on the mountain. He gives his laws to his people, and he teaches them the way to live. And it's all summed up in this simple command, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, to be kind and gracious and compassionate and that's what we need to learn because our universal problem is hatred. Paul says in Titus 3, verse 3, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, 
and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And so Paul tells us here in Ephesians that we need to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. So he gives a list of words describing what he means by this anger and this evil kind of hatred that's in us. And uh, I think these words are, are instructive and they, they help us to get a grasp of what it is that is our problem. Get rid of all bitterness. And bitterness is a word uh, in the original that is often applied to a poison, something harmful, something dangerous and destructive. And there is a tendency in me to be destructive, to want to damage people, to do harm. Um, I, I remember uh, when... when uh, when I was a kid, I used to have a, a lot of conflict with my oldest brother. Uh, he would help me in lots of ways. You know, I would really look to him to kind of teach me things and this sort of thing. But then once he would get started teaching me, he would get more and more directive and sort of belittling and all this stuff. And I would get more and more frustrated and I would try to ask a question. I'd feel like I was you know, being jumped all over and everything. And then finally I would get so frustrated I would storm off and storm upstairs to my bedroom and uh, pull, pull off of the shelf one of the models that he had painstakingly made a few years before when he was into building these plastic models you'd buy at the drugstore for a few dollars. And uh, he'd painstakingly build a whole set of army trucks and tanks, and they were the coolest thing. And when he got a little too old for them, he gave them to me. And he had put so much of himself into them and he had treasured them, and nobody could go near them for all these years, and now they were mine. And when I would get so upset with him, I would go upstairs, and I would break some part of one of them. It was mine, and I'm breaking it, but it was because it was his, and I had that desire to destroy and to do harm and uh, do something to get back at him. That resentment had built up in me. It's like the... Um, the guy in the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Jesus tells about this guy who's called into his master and he owes millions of dollars and in unbelievable debt. How did he rack it up? And uh, he begs his master for mercy because he sees that, you know, he's in, in deep trouble. And uh, his master forgives the debt. And the first thing this guy does he goes out from his master's presence, and he's hunting. And he finds his fellow servant who owes him, you know, a couple hundred bucks. And he begins to choke him and say, pay back what you owe. And there's this desire to destroy. There's this tendency to be destructive and to do harm. Bitterness. And that's what, uh, what sort of uh, is, is a broad overview of the whole issue that Paul is talking about, bitterness. And then the last word in his list, malice, is another uh, sort of general word, catch-all. 
sort of describing the whole issue that Paul is talking about, malice, ill will, uh, a malicious intent, the desire to see harm come to people. But then there are two sets of words in between. Ephesians 4, verse 31, he says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger. And that's a pair. The words go together, they're they're roughly synonymous. And what they talk about is that inner feeling of rage, that out-of-control emotion. And Paul says, put it off. And brawling and slander. And uh, brawling and slander, what brawling is, is a noisy, tumultuous commotion of an argument. A big, loud argument with a lot of yelling and shouting. It's it's stomping up the stairs, and you get to the top, and you slam the door, and then you open it again, and you shout down the stairs, and I'm not coming down till you tell me where you hid the Oreos, and you slam it again. That's a brawl. That's brawling. And uh, we're familiar with the pattern, and Paul says, put it off. So, uh, so hatred is the thing that we that we struggle with. And we're to imitate the Father in his patience. Uh, Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, it says that we were by nature objects of wrath, but God showed his grace to us. We were by nature, by what we are, by the way we've treated God, by everything that's come out of us since we were conceived, we're by nature those who deserve punishment. And God has not carried out his punishment against us. We are by nature people who arouse bitterness and malice in God, who arouse his anger by by what we do and what we are. But God has not treated us that way. But in Christ, he has shown us love and mercy and compassion. So Paul says we should imitate God. Look at the next verse, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Imitate God's love. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Love is the trait of God's family. And uh, God's people are marked by love. The old family, our first family, was marked by hatred. But God's family, God's people, are marked by love. Uh, This is the the sign, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so God's people love. And so Paul tells us in verse 32 what we ought to do. He says that we ought to love God's people, love God's family. That's the mark. That's what they're like. So have the mark. Do what God's people do. Love one another. Uh, This is how we ought to be. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Three words to describe love. um, That we should be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. Kindness is about giving to a person as he has need. And this is what God has done for us. God has seen our needs and he's provided everything that we need. 
He's provided ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our souls, everything that makes us what we are. He has given us everything that we could need. And he's given us the world, the earth, with all the resources and, and the things that we need, and provided a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful, amazing kind of life that we have. And then he's provided us with himself. He's spoken to us. He's given us his word. He's given us his promises. He's given us his teaching, his instruction. He's given us hope for beyond. He's given us love and meaning and understanding and purpose. And everything that we need, he's provided. He's kind. And, um, you know, the, uh, the command that we should be kind and loving and compassionate to those in God's family. Maybe it sounds too exclusive. Maybe it sounds like it's too limited that we're just talking about loving those of God's family. And maybe it is. Maybe if, if that's the only verse that you take uh, concerning love, and that's the only command that you take, is to love God's family, then I suppose it's too exclusive. Jesus said, love your enemies. And do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone asks you, forces you to go a mile, go with them too. If someone wants to steal your garment, give him your coat. And uh, if someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn the other as well. So he says, love everybody. That was Jesus' teaching. And Paul teaches something similar. He puts the two ideas together. Love for God's family and love for those who are out of God's family. He puts the two together in Galatians 6.10. He says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So as we have opportunity, do good to all people, not just believers, but even those outside. God shows gracious kindness to the believers and to the unbelievers, to the wicked and to the righteous and he calls us to be perfect as he is perfect. But let's start at home. It, what good is it for you to be running around showing all kinds of love to all kinds of strangers, and you're not kind to your own family? So it's got to start at home. And the first priority of those who have experienced Christ's love is that they should love his family, the ones that he loves, the ones that he redeemed, the ones that, that uh, love him and believe in him and walk with him. So we're called to imitate God's love. Uh, just as God, has, God is kind and gives us all that we need, God is compassionate. Compassion uh, is, is about letting someone else's hurt move you. And that's what God wants us to, that's what God does for us. He sees our hurt. He sees the way that we suffer. He hears the prayer of the needy, of the poor. Jesus comes and he meets the leper. The leper with the skin disease asks him, uh, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus has compassion on him. He says, I am willing. And he reaches out his hand and touches him and says, be clean. Jesus looks at the multitude and he says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he's moved with compassion because of them. Matthew chapter 9 at the end. And then Matthew 10, 
he sends out his disciples to go and take the message that the Son of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. So God has compassion on us, and we should have compassion on one another. And then forgiveness, forgiving one another, just as God forgave us. It's a, it's a graciousness. It's not, not demanding and requiring what you could expect, but it's giving freely, just as God has given to us freely, as he's given to you freely. So you should freely give. So, love calls for all of this. Paul calls for all of this that we should be kind and compassionate, that we should put away hatred. How do you get people to love? How do you get people to to open their hearts to one another? Do you do it by shaming them? Do you do it by threatening them? Do you do it by instructing them and explaining all about how love is? Do you do it by setting an example? This is what love looks like. Now this is how you should do it. If you meet a loving child, you're meeting a child who has not only been scolded into loving, who has not only been threatened into loving. I don't know, there might be a little bit of that going on in the family. But if you meet a loving child, it's not just that he saw his parents' love and then he learned how to love by copying what he saw, but you're meeting a child who received love from his parents. He felt the love, and there was the connection of heart to heart between that child and whoever the the lovers and caregivers were that loved that child. And that's how a child learns to love. And that's how people learn to love. That love starts with an experience of love and then comes into a practice of love. Love is something that you catch. You receive it from someone who loves you, and then you know how to love. Love isn't something you just invent. It's not something you think up. It's not something you learn how to do. It's something you catch. It's something you receive. It's something that someone gives you. And uh, so the family trait of Christian love arises from an experience of Christ's love. Christ is the great lover. And he's the one who implants love in the hearts of his people. He's the one who can implant love in your heart and in my heart as no one else can. And so Ephesians 5, uh, 1 and 2, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. You know, he says, be imitators as dearly loved children. It's not like dearly loved children, but as dearly loved children. In other words, it's not that you act as if you were a dearly loved child. It's not that you should look at dearly loved children and see how they behave toward their parents, that they imitate their parents, and that they want to be like their parents, and that if their parents are loving, then they copy that. What he's saying is you are a dearly loved child. You've received God's love. You have been rooted and established in love. You've found Christ's love. It's in you. Now respond as a dearly loved child. Live a life of love. 
And so he says, as imitators of God, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Uh, Literally, walk in love. Because love is where you live if you're in Christ. And so love is where you walk. Love is where all of your behavior comes from because love is the foundation on which you stand. You're you're in Christ. You've been taken out of your sins. You've been forgiven. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. All of his mercy and grace and love has been poured out on you. Live in love. So, love is not just something that that we look into the Bible and learn about, but it's something that we meet and experience in God's word. Don't just read the Bible to see Christ and to see his love and to marvel at it. Look into the Bible to receive it, to find it, and to experience Christ's love. Christ comes to you in his word. As as we open the Bible, we're opening a book that isn't just information for us, but it is God speaking to us and his spirit speaks to us as we read and God confirms the things in our hearts. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, I will come and dwell with him and my father will dwell with him. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells with us and makes Christ real to us and manifests Christ's presence to us. So don't just look at Christ's love as a marvel, as something amazing and wonderful, as something to imitate. But look at it and receive it. Look at it, see it, and find it. Experience it. Look at your sin. Look at who you are. And experience what it means to be a sinner. Lost, without hope, without God in the world. Under his wrath, an object of wrath. Look at God's holy wrath, how just he is in punishing you for all that you've done in abusing your privileges, abusing his love, abusing his grace and kindness. Don't just look at it to stare at it and see it or think about it, but experience it. And look at Christ in heaven, on his throne in glory and peace, looking down through time and seeing you and loving you. Look at him adored in heaven, praised in heaven, loved in heaven, the center of love, the object of love for millions, for myriads of angels, and for all his saints, adored and loved, and he's looking down and loving you. Look at him leaving that love and coming down for you to earth. Look at him weeping over your sins. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to gather your children together as a, as a hen gathers her chicks. And weeping over your sins. Look at him sweating great drops of blood as he takes your place, as he accepts your burden. And you'd want to stop him and say, no, don't. Don't go to the cross. But you mustn't stop him because you must have his death for you. But don't urge him on, because you'd be like one of those who who crucified him. Look at him. 
He doesn't turn back. He goes to the, to the bitter end. He bears my pain, my suffering, my sin, my cross. He's dying. He's buried in your tomb. Look at him rising and going to heaven at the right hand of God, glorified and honored by God, again worshipped and surrounded by adoration and praise, in glory and honor, and yet he remembers you. He remembers me when I turn back, when I'm stubborn, when I drag my feet, when I'm lazy, when I sin. He still remembers me, and he's faithful to me, and he prays for you. Look at that love and uh, see that the Father is satisfied. Ephesians 5, verse 2, the last verse. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ's offering and sacrifice is fragrant to God. It's a pleasing aroma. God is satisfied. He is well pleased. Not with you and what you've done, not with me and what I am, He's satisfied with Christ and what Christ has done for us. Where then is boasting? Where is pride? Where is jealousy? Where is hate? There's no place. 